So, good evening, everyone. You know, retreats are such a special time, an opportunity to pause and to look deeply at things, at life, at our experience. I always think of retreats as almost like we're all called here by some divine appointment, you know, on this brink of time right now to pause together. And I think in some ways that was what's so inspiring about the Buddha is that he, he paused. He took a look deeply at what's happening. What is this experience? There was a period of time a couple years ago when every, every period of meditation I always heard the sound of a drum. It was it sounded like one of those big Native American drums that you would haul out to circles. And it was just, I would think, God, this is, I used to talk about it to my friends. I hear this drumming. And every time I would hear it, it would make me pay attention, you know, in a deeper way. It was like, like I'm being called to attention. Like, what is that sound, you know? And then also it would remind me that I'm a part of this great human family a part of all of creation with its beauty and its tragedy. You know, the bitterness and the sweetness, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It's touching, isn't it, in some way? This place of all the light and then the shadows. So here we are, again, just reminding you of what you already know every day. Everyday reminders, you know, we're reminding you about the present moment. Eckhart Tolle writes this about the present moment in his book, The Power of Now. He says, thoughts stop. The mind becomes silent. What shines through then is the energy of our being. We can dive much deeper into this vertical dimension of time and discover more about our true nature. To dive into the present moment is also the goal of meditation. The present moment is the entry point or the main portal into spiritual awakening. So this is what we're all doing. We're all we're sort of at this portal in the present moment. Here we are together. And I mentioned earlier about what we're trying to do as teachers is to help everyone stay balanced. Balanced and with equanimity. And equanimity is what I want to talk about tonight, this quality of being. Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions in the Buddhist practice. It's the ground for wisdom freedom, and it also is the protector of love and compassion. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, and measurable, without hostility and ill will. So it's also on the list, you could say, that we see again and again, 
It's on the four Brahma Viharas. It's on the list of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's included in the ten paramis. And then it's spoken about again and again in many references to developing states of concentration. So this quality of equanimity is very important and very helpful for our practice. The Pali word translated as equanimity is upekka. And that means to look over. It refers to the equanimity that arises from the power of observation. The ability to see clearly without being caught by what we see. This is the hard part, without being caught by what we see, seeing clearly. When this kind of equanimity is developed, this power, it gives rise to a great sense of peace. And we develop this quality through mindfulness practice, through being here again and again. We're developing it. It's like the present moment experience. So I want to talk about aspects of equanimity tonight and how we can not only incorporate them here and now, how we can develop this more in our practice, but how we, in the world, how do we function with this? Right? Why, was this why is this such a key, a key part of our practice? So I found this great little poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, our little teaching about meditation, and he says, to meditate does not mean to fight with a problem. To meditate means to observe. Your smile proves it. So he likes people to meditate with a little half smile, even in the midst of something difficult. There's a smile. He said, it proves that you're being gentle with yourself and that the sun of awareness is shining in you. That you have control of your situation. You are yourself and you have acquired some peace. And so this quality... One of the first aspects I think about this quality of equanimity is this opening to acceptance and also surrender. This acceptance and surrender, I think, are beautiful aspects of equanimity. When we hear the word surrender, some people, we don't like that word very much, you know. Like, surrender. (laughs) What we mean by that, or what I mean by that, is that we accept every experience into our awareness, that we're willing to accept the moment. This is more difficult uh, than it sounds, actually, because as a yogi, sometimes experiences arise and we don't want to accept it. It's like, it's kind of that don't go there mind. Oh, no, not that door. No, 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 anything but that. I didn't come to work on that, and then that arises, right? That one thing. <laughs> I, but that's, I think that's such a, the, the beauty and the honesty of the Dharma is it, it says we're not hiding here. We unmask ourselves in practice. We unmask, we unlayer everything. I think that's what feels so vulnerable about it at times is that we take down everything, all our, our habitual defenses, all our smoke screens. 
and we're here, sort of in the nakedness of the moment, you could say, in the bareness of the moment. And some people have been describing that as it feels overwhelming sometimes for people. But this is what we're doing. We're meeting the truth. And the masks, they're just made up of ignorance, right? They're confusion. They're our layers that we put on. And they start to fall, dissolve in practice. And we shed them. So this practice of mindfulness in some way is about learning to greet all the moments of our experience with sort of a respect. I like the word respect a lot in practice. Can I respect this moment? (laughs) Ah, Even if it's not what I want, but can I have a sense of respect with it? So we, we learn that. Another... Uh, this little poem by David White says it a lot in his poem called Enough. He says, Enough, these words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. So we have to open to everything. I I talked about that some last week, this opening on retreat. We open to the most painful and the most blissful. Right? We open to both, the highest of the high and the lowest of the low, sometimes within a scope of maybe two hours. Right? <laughs> and what's interesting is that we see everything in this sort of 3D effect. You know, you don't have to go to, you know, those theaters where it's like 3D glasses and then and you're in the surround sound or, I don't know, I saw, <laughs> I won't get into it, I went to the movies with my brother and it was like, you, there even was this scratch and sniff thing to make it feel more real and you would scratch these things in the middle. I was like, wow, this is really, I get it, <laughs> hold on here. <laughs> But we don't have to do that, aren't we already doing that right here, hour after hour? Everything seems so real. This is a strange part. I can remember asking my teacher, Minsha Rinpoche, he's on retreat right now in the midst of it. He probably has another year and a half and a three-year retreat. So you thought this was long. How long? <laughs> I said, I said Minsha, you always say this is a dream. Why does it seem so real? Why? And he would always say, ah, that's the clarity of the mind. It's this clarity aspect of the mind. We see it so vivid, right? There's a sharpness. And sometimes I think that people are recreating that in those 3D movies. The realer it is, the more we've we've won, right? We just bought into everything. Sight, smell, sounds, consumed by it, right? But he was saying that this is the aspect of the mind. Everything sounds and seems so real. So on retreat, here we meet our repetitive thoughts again and again. Painful stories, difficult emotions coming. We have to sometimes relive old traumas, right? It all arises again as if it's the first time. Even if we've worked on it, we think, oh, here it is. 
memories come being very little you know sometimes people even have memories of being in the womb you know going back back far and then sometimes we have to see with this kind of vivid 3d effect all our unskillful actions sometimes on retreat i'll look out and i'll see somebody like oh like you know we just think about things we've done or things we've said or things others have done or others have said We relive that. We play that. And then it's all the lies that the confused mind tells again and again. I think that's the hardest thing. We sort of meet ignorance full on. There's a deceptive quality in the mind, always telling stories, weaving stories together, making up stories. So So we open to this, and then at times we open to all the beauty and the love and the interconnectedness, right? And we start to pay attention to the truth. We, f- we feel like healing is happening or profound sense of metta arising. So here we are. We have to somehow meet the moment, be here with both of these experiences arising. How do we become more equanimous with this? This is our challenge. This is the path. We surrender into this experience with some sense of trusting. A few years back, um, I took my first trip to India. It was a long time ago. And I was traveling for a long time there, doing a whole bunch of pilgrimages and then some practice. And... uh, I think India is a great place to learn equanimity because you have no control. And there's places and things and you think, this is madness. And even the driving or the, the traffic jams, you know, it's like, well, why don't they make a lane and this the group go this way? And it's like, no, don't even try to fix it. You know, my friend who had been living there, she's like, spring, give it up. You can't fix this place. You just have to be let go. Let, she used to say, let Mother India work on your heart, you know, <laughs> letting go. So we on this trip and this pilgrimage, and it was like everything was going wrong that could go wrong. Every time we planned something, it would be reversed. You know, we would be dying for a shower. We'd go look for a place to stay, 10 places, and we'd go, do you have hot water? They'd say, yes, yes. We'd go in, it's freezing. You know, it was like every little thing. That's a little thing. That's a very little thing. But I'll never forget this one moment. And I was with a dear friend of mine. Sometimes we traveled in a big group, and then sometimes her and I traveled alone together and so she uh, is Egyptian quite beautiful she kind of looks like one of those maybe a Balinese Bollywood movie star you know so we were two women alone so people would stare at us children men women you know staring is a big thing in India it's not considered impolite people will stare for long periods of time (laughs) and so we'd be at the ATM and there'd be 50 people very close we just started getting used to going, hi, friends, hi, friends, and making our way through the crowd, you know. They seemed to like it when we called them friend, you know. They knew that word, and they felt like they softened. You could see their expression. And so every, you know, we, like I said, we had had this trip, and we started to begin to laugh at every time we wanted something, the opposite would arise. And we just like, that's India. And we started getting in a little habit of saying that. So there we were, and we had gone through all this trekking around, and... Uh, 
uh, we were at a, the site of Nalanda University. We were doing a little pilgrimage around, and there was these great ruins, the temples of this great university in the 8th century. It was my Shanti Deva and, and all these great masters, you know, Naropa, <laughs> and uh, all had uh, studied and practiced this great school of knowledge, you know, great teachers. So we were there, and uh, we were in this beautiful park, and it was many acres, you know, this park. And it was on the early part of the day, it wasn't that many people, very few people actually, and her and I were walking in the garden and looking around, and we stopped on this bench. And we were looking out, and we're like, wow, this is beautiful. You know, we had just come from Bodh Gaya, where it was really busy, so that seemed very peaceful. We were just having moments of peace there, sitting and walking around. And out of the distance, I did see a man coming from far away. It was no problem. And so we were on this bench sitting and kind of talking and looking. It was just open space, garden, open space. And this man came and he sat really close to us. There's a little bench, maybe not farther than this front row here. And he turned around and he just stared. So we, it was blocking our view and we were... <laughs> And we thought, okay, surely a few moments it'll stop, right? And we were like, and we kept talking. And then at some point it became really uncomfortable, right? He wasn't going to stop staring. And there we were. And we were like, God, it could have been so perfect with this man, you know, this staring person. We wanted beauty and perfection. Like, how could this be happening? And then we, st- we got it. We hysterically started laughing. And it was like, this is it. This is samsara. The beauty of this and the man staring at us. This is it. Like, this is how it always is, right? You can't get perfection here. We keep trying, and every time we're like, okay, this is it. It's quiet, beautiful. We'll stay here, and it'll be bliss out. Nope. Somebody comes and sits there staring, blocking the whole thing, right? And we laughed so hard. He must have thought something was wrong with us, because he left, actually, because we were just... <laughs> we, just something about our neurotic trying for the whole you know, month and a half of getting something, clinging, wanting everything to work out, and it wasn't. And I just thought, this is equanimity. Thank you. And we just started bowing and laughing. We're like, this is how it is. And that was a really important... It was an important teaching because there's something about accepting things as they are, that we are in samsara, this, this kind of, you know, we're wanderers in this realm looking, and we can't find perfection here. And I think if we learn how to surrender into that, we'll be a lot happier. It's like, oh yeah, we try to build everything up to be perfect, and that falls down again. And we, if we don't really understand, we can feel that the, somehow something is against us. Right? Like, life is against me. It's never working out. On some level, I'm not sure it's supposed to ever work out. Another teacher, this other story just came to mind. A teacher came, a good friend of mine, we were at a meeting, and he came into the meeting, and he was holding his mouth like this. And I said, what's wrong? He said, oh, I broke my tooth. Right? I have to go get it fixed, and I'll go take care of that. But I guess he was feeling self-conscious, so he, was, you know, he had broken front tooth. So he got it, he went and got it fixed, and then maybe not more than a month later, he was doing that again, kind of. And I said, oh, what happened? You looked, you know, I saw you had it fixed, you know, because I see, see him quite often. 
He said, another one broke. And then he said, you know what, spring, I, I think I'm getting old. Right? It was kind of this thought like dawning on him. And he said, you know what I realized this morning is none of us are making it out of this alive. <laughs> and at first we laughed, but then we got serious and we're like, mm-hmm, isn't that the truth, right? It was sort of a, a poignancy. It's like, you're right, why are we pretending we would? <laughs> but it was really, really something to that. So we sort of start to accept things. We start to accept the imperfection of life. Right? We walk outside, we see a beer can. Instead of going crazy, we just go, oh, here's the beer can and the redwood tree. Beautiful. Right? It's like we stop shading ourselves in some way. We start to include more and more of the truth. And we do that through our practice of mindfulness. At first, we try to hold out a lot, right? We only want to see, we only want to see the good. No, no, I don't want to open to this. This is, this can't be dharma. This is too scary. This is too mean. This is too greedy. This is too lustful. It's too dark. I can't open this door, right? But we, at some point, we're willing to. It's like, oh, this too is empty. This too is empty. As equanimity grows, we begin to see also that everything has value. I think that's an important shift. Our most painful experiences have value. We can grow from these things. Anytime I've had big challenges or difficulties, or even using that trip to India, I got wiser. I learned through that. Sometimes we might have the, the thought, oh, I'm suffering, it's, it's meaningless. But that term, grist for the mill, is exactly what it is. We can turn our difficulties and our challenges into beautiful lessons of truth, forgiveness, and letting go. I sometimes think of the people on the planet who have a tremendous amount of equanimity. They're often those that have endured a lot like Nelson Mandela, right, getting out of prison 28 years, having this inner peace. And then all the influences on him and his new government, this group and that group, and sort of walking the middle path, right? All these different people I think about who had these difficulties. The mother who founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving after she left lost her beautiful daughter, she then started this whole foundation, organization, a movement, actually. Right? So we can use our difficulties. We can grow from them. And that helps us open to it. Because we see, ah, this too has value. This too is important. This is a story uh, of the butterfly. So a man found a cocoon of a butterfly. One day a small opening appeared. He sat and watched the butterfly for several hours as it struggled to squeeze its body through the tiny hole. Then it stopped as if it couldn't go any further. 
So the man decided to help the butterfly. He took a pair of scissors and snipped off the remaining bits of cocoon. The butterfly emerged easily, but it had a swollen body and shriveled wings. The man continued to watch, expecting that at any moment the wings would enlarge and expand to support the body. Neither happened. In fact, the butterfly spent the rest of its life crawling on his kitchen table. It was never able to fly. What the man in his kindness and haste did not understand is that the restricting cocoon and the struggle required by the butterfly to get through the opening was a way of forcing the fluid from the body into the wings so that it would be ready for flight once that was achieved. Sometimes struggles are exactly what we need in our lives. Going through life with no obstacles would cripple us. We would not be as strong as we could have been. We would never know how to fly. So I like to talk about that a little bit as far as equanimity, as our difficulties and how we use them. And that story, sometimes we learn from going through very difficult situations. We learn patience. We learn compassion. We learn about how strong we really are. You know, I read stories of, you know, when I was young, Maya Angelou's book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, Touch Me. And it was all the difficulties in her life, you know? And then she becomes this great poet standing there, you know? It's like, wow, a queen. <laughs> Out of, you know, sort of after being the lotus blooming in the mud, you know? It's like, right, we can use those things to develop courage. We become equanimous and wise. We start to see that when difficulty arises, we think, okay, how can I work with this? What do you want to teach me? I start to look at that now when things are not going well or when some suffering arises. What do you want to show me? Okay, what do I need to open to here? Where is the this thread of gold and the lining? There always is if we're willing to look. Without the winter, there would be no spring. Everything has its cycles. Opening and closing, we have cycles. Our, our practice has cycles. We go through these profound radical shifts and then sometimes right behind that is another layer of purification. And we maybe think, oh, I'm doing something wrong. Right? It was so beautiful yesterday. Now today, really bad. Right? But this is the cycle. It's like the wings open and close, and then open and close. Another profound thing that I've learned about equanimity, this is really deep, so everyone really listen here, okay? Ancient wisdom you probably learned as a child. Things do not always go our way. We don't always get what we want. I can remember my mother telling me that all the time as a child. You can't always have what you want. And I was so sincere. I would think, why? I don't Why? It's just a simple request. You know, I would have some extravagant thing I wanted. So it's difficult to actually accept this as adults. We really do think that if we practice meditation, we will get what we want. There's a delusion there. Right? I can remember coming home from a retreat one time, and then my car was stolen. 
And I was thinking, why did this happen? I just meditated for three months, you know? <laughs> I was so good. I, 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 you know, as if somehow I'm exempt from samsara, right? Like, yeah, you come home, this happens, you know? There was a teacher here, uh, I think it's Marcia, Marcia Rose. She told me the story once where she was on a retreat and she got a note on the board that said, call home. A little ominous sometimes, right? It's like, uh-oh. And it was the kind of the note that you would never want to get. Or you get, you know, you call home and then they say, oh, there was a fire and your whole house burned down. Really sorry. Right? It's like, wow. <laughs> Everything's gone, right? This stuff happens to people. Uh, Byron Katie, another teacher that I, I love a lot, who's sort of from the more non-dual school, said one time she came back from a trip with her husband, and she said it was like someone backed a U-Haul up to their house. Everything was gone. Now, she has tremendous equanimity. She walked in, started laughing, and said, well, honey, this makes life easier. <laughs> her feisty Italian husband was irate, right? He was freaking out, as they say. So... There's a certain wisdom with, that we start to inhabit with life. Like, it's like, yeah, it's, all, it's not, it's not going to always be there. Things change. Things are fluid in the material form realm. It's here today. We use it. It may not be tomorrow. Right? There's so much letting go. Like, things are always shifting. So one of the classical teachings that the Buddha pointed to was the eight worldly winds. He said these are these sets of pairs that are always shifting. These winds are always blowing. Right? And if you're a human being, you come here, you will experience these and they will change. Right? So I'll go over them a little bit. The first pair is praise and blame. The second is success and failure. The third is pleasure and pain. And the fourth is fame and disrepute. So let's just look at the first one, praise and blame. You will be blamed for everything at some point. You know, where, 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 you know people come and sometimes you try to do everything perfect, they're still mad. <laughs> right? We have to sometimes endure that. You know, we will be blamed for things we had nothing to do with or things we did have something to do with. There's a certain uh, humor that we can take with it. At Spirit Rock, the cooks, one time I was in the kitchen. Uh, some of my friends, two of the friends, uh, our good friends of mine are cooks there now. And they had this little note board that said praise and blame board. And they had huge stacks of notes, right? One said praise, one said blame, right? And I was like, oh, you guys practice this. They're like, yeah, of course. Every note goes on the praise or blame side. There was a lot more praise notes, so that was good. And so I opened the blame ones. I was like, I can't believe it. The food's so amazing. Who would be blaming you, right? And it's like, how could you put garlic in that? I'm allergic to garlic. Don't make spicy food. I have, you know, it was like... I can't believe that was horrible, right? And then go to the praise side, and it's like, oh, this is so beautiful, that is so good. But they had to make a system, otherwise they wouldn't treat it as a practice, right? Praise and blame, it's part of it. Some people love you, some people will never, will never, will never love you. <laughs> no matter, <laughs> right? 
Even the Buddha had enemies that were ferocious. His own cousin tried to kill him at one point. Right? His cousin, Devadatta, tried to kill him. Once was his student. And then turned against him in a fury. And even told all these other monks to go with him. Right? And then, not only that, then he tried to unleash a wild elephant on him. And, right? A deranged elephant. But then they said the Buddha held out his hand and the power of his love. He transformed the elephant into a beautiful being of, you know, safety. When he'd been stampeding people, I guess, this elephant. Then his cousin tried to throw this huge stone on top of the Buddha when he was walking, doing walking meditation, right? I think they said at that point his Buddha's foot was cut a little bit, and then a hole in the earth opened and Devadatta fell in, and it was kind of like... But even as he was going in, they said the Buddha said, Devadatta, one day you'll be a Buddha, right? As he's going into the, <laughs> falling into a hell realm of some kind. <laughs> he had no anger, right? One day you'll be free, long time from now, long, long time, but one day you'll get there, right? He's like, the Buddha accepted this. One time a woman said she was pregnant by him and went and told all these rumors and people believed it. And like, oh, he's a liar, right? Hurling abuses at him. I mean, this is, a, this is a fully awake being. Don't think it won't happen to you. Of course it will. Right? We'll be praised. And people love it. Oh, spring, we love it. Oh, that person, I hate it. That was terrible. Even teachers giving Dharma talks. Right? They suffer over that. Oh, someone liked it. Someone hated it. Oh, my gosh. Right? It can get any person who shares anything has that. This is a funny, uh, just why I'm on the topic, a funny teaching by Ajahn Sumedho on giving Dharma talks. So Ajahn Sumedho, you know, he's sort of like the grandfather. He's, a, he's just been in robes so long. First, one of the first disciples of Ajahn Chah in the late 60s, early 70s. He really has a certain profound sense of equanimity in his old age now. I think he's 80 or close to 80. Anyway, so here's a, a teaching I found that I thought, thought was really good. So it's a little bit long, a little bit of a story. He writes, When I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, Aye, aye, sir, in public in a roll call would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight and nine-year-old children in North Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then I became a monk in Thailand, and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai. All this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you'd get when you felt you'd given a good talk, and everybody would say, you're really good, Sumedho. You can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I would give a really stupid talk and think, I don't ever want to give another talk again. I didn't become a monk to give talks anyway. <laughs> but the idea was to keep watching this. Lung poor Cha would always encourage me to keep watching, aware of pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, the self-consciousness that I would feel. And fortunately in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving any talk. Even if it's not very good, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it, so that made it easy. One time, though, at a katina ceremony where we had to sit up all night, 
Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up until that time, I'd only talk for less than a half an hour. That was a, a strain, three hours. He smiled at me. He knew. <laughs> With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and I talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. <laughs> and at the end of the three hours, there was still a couple of polite old ladies sitting up there. <laughs> that was an Ajahn Chah saying, okay, Samaito, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do is to look at the self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All of these have come up during these talks of the past 15 years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of self-view. And then through this insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So I like Ajahn Sumedha's process there. <laughs> so praise and blame, we don't let any of it go to our head. Some people love it, some don't. We just say, balance with that. Great, glad it's helpful for you. And then success and failure. All kinds of times we might be successful, other times we fail. But what we learn from failure is what we call failure, the concept of failure. And that in itself is the teaching. Right? What didn't go well? I'm so glad now some of my crazy ideas when I was younger did fail. Wow, what a gift that saved me from. Right? I was like, oh, good thing that didn't work out. It was pretty off, right? And the things that succeed just succeed. They have nothing to do with us. We can put our whole heart into something. The outcome is what we're equanimous with. Right? We're equanimous. We can do things, but we let go of the outcome. Pleasure and pain comes and goes. Sometimes the body feels good, filled up with energy and light. Other times, wracked with pain, we can barely walk. These things are interesting. They're just always coming and going. And even sometimes what we consider pleasant turns unpleasant. Even if you have a partner or someone you care about, this is actually um, what Pascal and I were talking about one day. We were saying how the mind is so fickle. When it, some days it likes something, some days it doesn't, and then it reverses. Now they like it, now we don't. We were saying, oh yeah, it's nice. You come home and you have a partner and maybe they're, you've had a hard day and maybe they rub your hair and you're like, okay. But if they were to keep rubbing your hair for a very long time, it would, you'd get crazed, right? You'd beg them to stop, right? That's how we are. Things are changing. There's a certain fickleness to, to ourselves. You know, we can't depend on anything. And then fame and disrepute. I want to read you a story about Hakawin because I brought Hakawin up the other night, the Zen master. Hakawin. Again, the famous Zen master in Japan. So he lived in a remote village and was often praised by his neighbors as a man of pure living. So once a beautiful unwedded girl in the village was found pregnant. 
being a very conservative family, of a conservative village, the family was furious. The girl refused to confess who the man was, but after many beatings and even harassment by her parents, she finally named its master Hakawin. In great anger, the family went over to the master and said, um, you know, confronted him, but all he did was calmly say, is that so? After the baby was born, it was brought to Hakawin, and he took very good care of this little child. He begged for milk and other things that the little one needed from the neighbors. By this time, Hakawin's reputation was completely destroyed. But that didn't seem to trouble him. He was even scorned by the villagers, but that didn't seem to bother him at all either. A year later, the girl's mother finally broke down and confessed the truth. The baby's father was not Hakuin, but a young man who worked nearby. The girl's parents went to Hakuin at once and begged profusely for his forgiveness and to get the baby back. <laughs> Hakuin. <laughs> Hakuin willingly gave back the baby, and all he said was, don't worry about it, just go home. <laughs> okay, that's a Zen master, right? Many of us would have a very difficult time dealing with that. But, but this is the thing, is that the Buddha was saying, if our, if our sense of well-being is tied up on these eight worldly winds, we will suffer. Because they're always going to change. And we see this in... Hollywood, right? Somebody we love, everyone holds them up. Oh, they're the greatest. And the next day, they're just trash, right? They're this, they're that. We hate them, right? And they're just on the, just despair, right? It's so sad, actually. Right? We love them, they're famous, and then now they're hated. It's, oh, I don't even want to look at that person, right? If people turn their back like that. It's a sad fate, right? But we also, it's the same for us, these worldly winds. How do we live outside of that? Right? Knowing that they're always going to be blowing. And often, something that seems horrible can be the best thing that ever happened. This is also what I've seen with equanimity. Another story that illustrates this point called Maybe. Once a time, a peasant had a horse. This horse ran away. So the peasant's neighbors came to console him for his bad luck. He answered, maybe. The day after the horse came back, leading six wild horses with it. The neighbors came to congratulate him on his good luck. He said, maybe. The day after, his son tried to saddle and ride one of the wild horses, but he fell down and broke his leg. Once again, the neighbors came to share that misfortune, the peasant said, maybe. The day after that, soldiers came to grab all the youth of the village, but the peasant's son was not chosen because of his broken leg. When the neighbors came to congratulate him, the peasant again just looked and said, maybe. So I like this because in some aspects, True equanimity also requires some faith. Like, ah, I don't understand what's happening, but things are happening lawfully. What can this show me? Again, coming back to the teachings, the teachings of impermanence, the teachings of faith. Can I trust that this is happening the way it needs to happen, even if I don't understand the outcome? Right? It has a certain level of 
steadiness there. And also impermanence, as Ani talked about, right? It's everything is always changing. We become more equanimous and we're able to be with more because we know things are going to shift. Even your worst moment that you had today, it's where is it now? It's gone. Right? Or it's going. Wake up tomorrow, it's a new day. There's that beauty of life. It's always beginning again, over and over, right? It's like, ah, I can have equanimity. The the newness is going to begin again. Sylvia Bornstein, I talked about her the other last week when we talked about how she has so much metta. She she was telling a story one time about um, when she was very young. She's um, 78 now, I believe, turned 78. She teaches at Spirit Rock. She was telling me how when she was young, she had four children. Before she was 25 years old, she had four children. So she got married very young, still married to her husband now, had four children, and they were all under the age of five, right, at the same time. So she said there she was at home, and they were all, what she said, having a meltdown. And she seemed like she couldn't do anything to make them happy. They just wanted to scream and cry, right? And she tried and tried, and they didn't want to be picked up. They didn't want to be put down either. So you're stuck there, right? So she finally just sat there, and then she said, okay, this is a really bad day we're all having. But she went and she had done a painting project and had some yellow paint. So she had this yellow paint, and she went up, and she pulled out a ladder. And over the door of her kitchen, she started painting in Hebrew, this too shall pass. <laughs> right, so there she is. She's pretty tiny, but she was up there painting. And of course, her children stopped crying and asked her, what are you, what are you doing? And then she explained the quote, this too shall pass. It's this great equanimity, right? This too shall pass. Uh, and uh, she gave them a talk in impermanence. <laughs> I was like, of course Sylvia would do that. Of course, you know. <laughs> Her kids are amazing now. Two of them are doctors. It's like, you know, something worked really good, you know. But I thought that was so beautiful that at such a young age, she had this sort of innate, like, oh, God, this today is horrendous, and this will pass. And a matter of fact, I'm going to paint it over our kitchen archway so every day we see this. All of us, this too shall pass. That's equanimity. It's like we meet challenges in life because we know that we can uh, endure them. Nothing lasts forever. It's important to see that. And in meditation practice, you need equanimity to go far because sometimes on the path there are stages that we We need the practice of equanimity to develop our concentration. Also, as we journey down the path farther, there are stages where the mind starts to get into phases of dissolution, things falling apart, right? Even to see aspects of the ego, right? As the ego starts to lose some power, we need a lot of equanimity because fear can set in. Right? Sometimes we can get very afraid of just what happens in our practice as things, the truth is revealed. It sometimes frightens us. And an equanimous mind can stay balanced right, with the truth, looking deeply, steady. Right? Everything arises and we just have this, okay, whatever arises, I can meet it. There's a steadfastness there. 
right? There's a kind of like, ah, I'll be like a mountain, a great mountain, right? And steady. The Buddha used as an analogy, be like a great mountain, unmoved by all of the changes. Also, I was uh, thinking about equanimity, too. There's a, there's a person that I am very fond of. I haven't actually met him in person. He's on death row at San Quentin. His name is Jarvis J. Masters. He's a writer. He's written two books, one called Finding Freedom, the other one called This Bird Has My Wings. And um, he's been on death row since he was very young. You know, he was accused of killing a prison guard or he was accused of sharpening a weapon that, that killed a prison guard. So he ended up getting a death sentence. Um, but he talks about, in his book, Finding Freedom, which I just love it. It's just so real. But he talks about how he has to develop equanimity, because he, now he considers himself a bodhisattva. He's taken bodhisattva vows. and So there he is in San Quentin. He says, I have to be equanimous when there's a cockroach in my soup. I have to be equanimous when the guards won't give me toilet paper. I have to be equanimous when, instead of sleeping, one of my cellmates screams all night long. Right? And he says he just has to keep it. It's like, here I am, and this is what I have to work with. It's like, okay, now this. And he sits up you know, for hours after hours, just all the insanity of everything, just rising and falling, rising and falling. I just find his strength and courage to be very inspiring. We don't need perfection to develop equanimity. Sometimes we need imperfection. That's how you practice here. Can you be with things as they are? Someone moves our pillow, can we be with it? Right? The lunch line's really slow, can we be with that? <laughs> right? It's like all these ways that you can practice here developing this. Because in our sensitized state, the mind's reactive. But can we think, oh, great, I can use this to develop equanimity. Like, this is the only way you develop it is by the imperfection of not getting what we want, right? We endure. We endure things. When the crowded refugee boats met with storm pirates, this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, when the crowded refugee boats met with storm, storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone else to survive. So we can become a pillar. One of the problems, I think, with equanimity is we get it mixed up with the, the near enemy indifference. I work with a lot of young people, and they always have a fear. They have this fear. And somebody may have this fear, too. So I don't want to be one of those like meditation drones, just like everything is neutral. You know, they have this vision. Like, I want to be passionate spring. I don't want to lose my edge. You know, I'm, I'm a this. And I'm like, no, you won't lose your edge. You'll lose your delusion. <laughs> right? You'll lose your pain. That sound good? <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good, right? We lose our reactivity to what we can't control. There's a certain wildness to life that we have to get used to. Anything could happen at any time. Really take that in for a moment. Anything could happen at any time, any time right? It's a wildness to things. 
but it's also unfolding lawfully, so we have faith. Everything is unfolding due to causes and conditions, so that I, I rest in. Buddha says, live in joy, in love, even among those that hate. Live in joy in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, even among the troubled. Look within and be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. So this quality of equanimity is not a a cold detachment. It's actually very connected. True equanimity cares, but yet it's still balanced. This is how things are right now. Things are as they are. They couldn't be otherwise. Everything always happens on time. Even in its chaos, there's perfection, even if we don't understand. There's trust. We can have faith in that. There uh, is a great story of a Zen teacher who with her very last breath, okay, in the tradition of Zen teachers, they say their pithiest instruction right, for their very last breath. So there she is, lying there, her students all around, getting the very last breath, opens her eyes and says, thank you, I have no complaints. (laughs) Isn't that great? Don't you wish you could say that? Thank you, at the very last breath, wow, great. Thank you, I have no complaints. So we develop equanimity over time, as you sit here, the more you, you can be with the beauty, the more you can be with the difficult, then the beauty again and the difficult, just being steady. We just sail our ship upright and steady. Okay, not getting blown this way too much, not getting blown that way too much. Right, we just, we just go forward. So I want to end uh, with one last story. It's kind of a joke more than a story, but you'll see what I mean. It's called Two More Isles. So a man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies, and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go. We'll be there soon. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout very loudly for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, began to scream. The mother said, There, there, Monica. Don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, 
We'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, I am Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. <laughs> so sometimes it's just that way with your practice. You'll be like, five more minutes, I can go to lunch. Then I can, and you work with yourself in that way, right? It's like, yeah, it's going to be okay. The moment will pass. So, thank you. Let's just sit together for one moment here. Thank you.